0: Hello, Global Investor listeners. Before we start today's show, I want to let you know about Belgrad Homes in Tyler, Texas. They're offering newly constructed 130 square meter, 1,400 square foot homes for $145,000. They are offering financing to US and foreign investors for 30 years at 6% interest with a 30% down payment. If you're interested, please contact belgradhomes.com, spelled B-E-O-G-R-A-D homes.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Rob Beardsley. Rob oversees acquisitions for Lone Star Capital and has acquired over $100 million of multifamily real estate. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities and published a book on multifamily underwriting. So thanks so much for being on the show, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So you're, you're quite the underwriter for what you're doing with Lone Star and you also work with raising money for them. Uh, Can you kind of go through your background prior to starting to invest in real estate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I had an interesting path into real estate because I grew up in a real estate family, but my parents who ran a real estate brokerage firm in Silicon Valley, they pushed me towards tech, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, seeing all the startups around us, all the, you know, really prosperous tech companies, they thought that was the dream for me. And, um, you know, so I went to college for computer science and I was studying and going down that path. But, uh, you know, sometime around in college, I just circled back to real estate and I was thinking to myself, you know, well, at the end of the day, if I go through this tech route and I make a bunch of money, what am I going to do with it? I've got to invest it. And so I started just looking into, you know, investing and that led me back to real estate and realizing, yeah, real estate is the best path it's the it's, it's the best way to to create and build upon your wealth and um you know then eventually just through through more research and um you know discussions with my family it just made sense for me to not pursue a career in tech and go into real estate and i started working with my parents and then as you know went out and founded uh, lone star capital shortly thereafter and um, it's been a great ride ever since
0: what were your, uh, what was your parents? Were they involved with real estate? Cause you said you partnered with them.
1: Yeah. So like I said, they, they they came from the single family residential single family. world. Mm-hmm. Yep. So running a, a residential brokerage firm, as well as doing uh, their own investments, uh, construction, development, rehabs, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting because it takes somebody younger without those limiting beliefs. And a new way to look at the world to be able to say, no, let's go out there and let's go look at those bigger deals. Let's let's make something bigger happen. And obviously that's the natural transition from single family to multifamily.
0: So they never got involved with multifamily or anything like this. This is all new on your generation? Yeah. Nice, nice. Okay, so for give us a little background on what Lone Star is, what you guys, what's your strategy when you're looking to invest? What are the markets? Kind of like an overview here.
1: Yeah, so Lone Star Capital is... A owner-operator focused on suburban multifamily across Texas. Um, our primary markets are uh, Houston, Dallas, and then secondary markets throughout, um, throughout the state. And we do look at some surrounding states. But um, yeah, our, our business plan, we have two strategies. One would be we call core plus, which is we're looking for better assets and better locations. And we're looking to hold those for longer term and more of the return is generated from Current yield or the cash flow, and then our value add strategy is you know we're typically looking for deeper value add than the typical deal. You know we're not looking typically just for the the lipstick value add we call them, where we're just you know doing four thousand dollar interior unit turns and calling it a day. We're really looking to uh, fix issues and and really get paid for that risk. And so we're looking for poor management, down units. Um, deferred maintenance, things like that where we can really come and create outsized value. So that's our two strategies. One is, you know, come in, buy it, fix it, and likely sell it. And the other one is, you know, we believe long term in the in the asset and location and we and we and we like the cash flow that we're getting from it.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think a lot of syndicators and investors, because there's so much buzz around the value add, they're kind of missing the whole bolt on the actual repair and upgrading of the bones of a property. And because there's no rent increase there. So it's something that kind of gets patchwork, I think. And when you're looking at a deal years back when I would look for like passive investing in deals, and it was something you always saw. You never saw anybody. Well, I'm like, well, there's nothing here about any of the the true mechanicals or roofs or anything like this. It's just like, we're going to do this, but then we're going to put granted in. And that's it's great that you focus on that because that's not something that I think most investors or syndicators are really focused on.
1: Yeah, it's a great point and I, and I wrote an article about this a while ago, talking about how everybody's talking about the, they want to look at the sexy before and after pictures of the kitchen renovation and you know, the new flooring and and things like that. Right. And, and for people that are, you know, visual or not, you can just see it. And it's so straightforward to be able to picture and understand how you'd be able to charge an extra hundred to $200 of rent with an upgraded unit. Right. It's a very straightforward business plan. That's easy to buy into what's, but, when you're separated from the numbers and this, we can tie into underwriting, you know, as somebody who's deep in the numbers, when you, you can look at a business plan that includes, you know, the, the granite, like as you talked about the granite countertops and, and getting a $200 rent premium. But the problem is if you paid up front a four cap, you basically overpaid up front for the opportunity to create the value in the back end. You're not really, number one, you're not being compensated for your risk. And number two, your returns aren't, aren't where you thought they were. Just because you're able to raise rents $200 it doesn't mean that you're actually hitting the return that you're looking for. And then on the flip side it's a lot harder for people to understand how they're actually creating outsized value for doing things like roof repairs or mechanicals or the foundation and uh, and curing other deferred maintenance because as you said there's no rent increase for that necessarily. So and but the but the answer to that is the the way you're creating value in the, in those circumstances is actually by lowering the risk of the asset and thereby lowering the cap rate in which your asset is valued. So you, you've actually seen a lot of uh, investors over the over this last cycle what they what they've done is they'll come in on an untouched property and they'll completely redo the clubhouse, they'll amenitize the property, dog park, everything. They'll um, uh, you know, cure all deferred maintenance and then just leave the interiors for the next guy. And they will sell that deal for an extremely low cap rate because the next guy is willing to pay up for the opportunity to complete the programmatic interior value add. So, so that's something, a business plan that people overlook. Um, but it, it has been very profitable.
0: The other thing too, is where we are now with COVID um, people aren't going to be getting these rent increases that they previously thought. So now it's like, oh, we'll just hold on and we're going to cash flow it. Well, you also have to do now your hold's going to be longer. And this property you have is also going to be older. So now that's something else that a lot of these operators that were looking for really aggressive rent bumps, I don't think they're going to be able to really achieve. And there's going to have to be something that gets changed because at some point you're going to have to do this maintenance especially before or it's going to be discounted when you sell it so yeah totally agree and i and i think the we,
1: we were we were very you know COVID or not the cycle was very long we were, we were at the tail end of the cycle valuations are getting stretched and you know rents could have could only grow so much more you know we had this long 10-year run of of rent growth and rents were increasing as a percentage of income and you know that can't last forever and so we were already seeing that get stretched and you know people were pulling back uh, you know even lenders and investors were pulling back in their willingness to pursue and finance value add deals where you were taking the interiors up a notch charging an even further premium and you know eventually you're starting to get to a level where you're competing with new construction and that's something you never want to do because new construction will always win right it's going to have higher ceilings it's going to have you know, everything, the latest and greatest. So, you know, having your rents as a class B asset compete with an A that was recently developed, um, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. So really the the business plans of, hey, this property is in great shape, it's performing, nothing's wrong with it, but we could still think we can raise another hundred bucks on the, on the units. You know, we shied away from those and, and we really chased after deals that had management upside. Like let's say, for example, the property's already renovated. There's nearly not much you want to do in terms of pushing the, the finishes and the rents. However, it's 80% occupied. Can we get it to 95? Right? Looking for, for, for real deferred or, or issues like that.
0: Yeah, that's great. So when evaluating a property or an area, what are some of the main determining factors you want to see? So
1: one of the first things we look at is median household income. I think that just paints a picture. I mean, it just gives you a number to work off of right away. Um, and, and we look at it at a very granular level. And then we go out, you know, to the census tract, one mile, three mile radius. And, uh, you know, that has to be in line with the tenant you're trying to attract and the price that you're paying for the property and the rents that you're charging, right? So, so median household income, number one, very big. Uh, other things would be the uh, single family home values. So, you know, you definitely want a nice delta between your cost basis in the deal and single family homes. It depends on the class of asset and, and the overall neighborhood makeup, but but really strong opportunities that that we've seen, you know, the the property will cost, let's say, a hundred thousand per unit and single family homes in that neighborhood will be four hundred thousand. So that is, is a very, you know, that makes you feel very safe and comfortable. You're, you're less likely to lose residence, um, you know, to single family, unless they, they've got a raise and, and they've got the money for a down payment. So, so single family home values, median household income, very big uh, in terms of, you know, market level metrics.
0: Yeah, it's great that it's not as easy for them to make the jump into that single family house from where they're renting. So you kind of have like a little bit of buffer zone there because that's one of the things too, I've spoken to places, uh, investors before, and they say, one of them in particular was saying, you know, we don't go anywhere with, uh, you're having a median in- or a, a medium house uh, price, I guess you would say that's under 100,000 or under 150,000, which I feel is really low. But if you're buying units, forty, fifty thousand $50,000, it's different. But um, yeah, you really have that, uh, you have that buffer zone, which makes it, you know, you, you can retain your, the renters in that area uh, much easier. Um, so when I speak to underwriters and I've never spoken to an underwriter that says they have like aggressive underwriting, right? And it's always something funny because I know you guys have different models, which is great because you usually, when you talk to underwriters, they have a value add model. There's not a different, as you consider core plus, but when you're, what are the rules or principles that you employ to achieve an accurate, but conservative underwriting when looking at deals.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's a funny thing. It's a joke that, you know, I've never met an aggressive underwriter, right? Everybody's conservative, but uh, the reality is we're all aggressive underwriters. That's the truth of it. Because whoever buys a, a deal, most likely, especially if it's been marketed to any degree, that's the person simply who is willing to pay the most right? And the way that you pay the most is by looking at your numbers and seeing where you get comfortable by pushing and squeezing to be able to come up with that highest valuation possible. So it's a delicate dance of pushing and squeezing, yet not going too far to put yourself at risk of, of losses and, and severe underperformance. And so I would, I would put, um, not to get too far off track, but I would put you know, risk of loss at a much greater importance than underperformance. Now, I think it's a win if we thought we were going to hit a 16% IRR and we only hit a 14, you know, I consider that a win as opposed to, you know, we squeezed and pushed and, and we went after a more aggressive deal and we thought we could get an 18, but then we ended up losing money, right? So I think there's a balance of pursuing the right deal on a risk-adjusted basis. So, uh, you know, you have to, So so, so one, so to kind of get into it, one thing that we're very focused on is, and I was actually rebuilding our, our chart last night, but we have a chart that that goes across all different um, market types and, and property types and business plans. And we actually assign a return requirement. We have various return requirements for each type of property type market business plan. And that way we always know what type of returns we should be seeking given the risk of the asset. So for example, if we think we're buying in a B location, in a major metro and it is a, you know, modest value add, we know exactly, you know, what return we're seeking there and, and we can solve the price to, to account for that return appropriately. So, so that being risk adjusted, I think is one way to, you know, be a conservative underwriter and, and really most accurately um, pursue deals because what you want to do is you want to know when it's right to get aggressive. You want to realize, okay, well, I am in a you know let's say I am in a better market. It's a Class A location, and, and it's a core plus, so it's very low risk. You know we're really not raising rents. We're we're I mean look at our pro forma. We're we're gradually raising NOI over time. You know we should be able to accept a lower return, um, for this low risk. So so that would be one one big thing that I don't think many people talk about, which is explicitly looking at your return hurdles, um, you know to help you really
0: get aggressive when necessary. What is your, what is the time frame usually on like a core plus? I mean, every deal is different, but. Uh, so I think
1: five to seven years is, is what we typically underwrite on a core plus.
0: Okay, cool. So with the country starting to open up because of COVID, how did your underwriting change when you've been reviewing deals all through the beginning of 2020, mid 2020 now? Yeah, so the biggest
1: change was
0: the financing.
1: The agency lenders were requiring, uh, and they still are, um, reserve holdbacks, uh, which which greatly increased how much equity you needed to bring to the table day one. Um, and then you'd hope that all goes well in your property's performance and you'd be able to have those reserves released roughly after 12 months. So that was something that we had to just factor in and be cognizant of. And, and it did, and it does affect your returns, you know, having to, to front cash day one, to then get it returned back to you in year two, that that does create a drag effect on your returns. But uh, aside from aside from the debt changing, the way that we adjusted our underwriting for the negative effects of COVID, which I would say you know being less willing to pursue um, rent increases and value add, and obviously taking organic rent growth off the table. You know pre COVID we were you know, rents nationally were growing solidly somewhere around 2%. And, you know, looking at NMHC's last report this week, um, you know, rents in May were down, you know, negative 0.1% or something like that. So so what we, what we did is we took any rent growth off the table for the first 12 to 24 months. We increased our hold period, generally speaking, to account for, as you said, you know, early on, sometimes you get stuck and you just have to hold a deal for longer because you don't have the opportunity to either implement your business plan or seek an exit because you don't have, you know, the optimal capital markets environment. So, um, you know, for those couple factors, you, know, you might have to wait to implement your business plan. You might have to wait to get the best price on a sale. Uh, we we lengthened our whole period, which as you know, when you lengthen your whole period, your IRR typically goes down. Um, you're, you know, you're spreading the value add aspect of the deal over more years. And that's diluting your returns. So, so, you know, just by taking rent growth off the table for the first 24 months and increasing your hold period and stressing your going in vacancy, that right there is going to, you know, take your deal that was an 18 IRR, you know, down to maybe a 12. And uh, so we were adjusting our pricing by roughly, you know, a 10% discount to, to get back to our 18%, for
0: example. So what do you see over the next few years? Obviously, you've changed around your rent growth over the next 12 to 24 months. What are you seeing for, let's say, next year, the year after going forward with multifamily? In, I mean, with everything that just happened, um, with all the printing of money, with the new regulations with agency, which will probably not be as stringent years to come after this passes, what do you, what do you see? It's, it's a really interesting time. I think all in all, people
1: are very bullish about multifamily the long term demographics are are only improving and i think so the going back to how we change our underwriting if you, i think if you noticed there was nothing that we really changed in terms of terminal valuation for example we didn't increase our exit cap rates thinking well the world you know the sky is falling and you know investors are going to hate multifamily and discount it um, with a higher cap rate we don't believe that's going to be the case you know things are going to get better and and get back to where they were so know, we're optimistic about the future for multifamily. And in terms of all the money printing that you mentioned, you know, obviously that has to show up as inflation at some point. Uh, We have no idea when, but you know, real estate has historically been a strong hedge to inflation. So, um, you know, it's not a multifamily is not a bad place to be, especially with year long leases turning over, you can adjust your rates, you know, with inflation, you know, hotels are the best, right? You have daily changes in your room rates. So that is actually the best inflation hedged real estate asset. Um, but, you know, multifamily is is pretty strong as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I actually think that um, the cap rates are probably going to get compressed with people not wanting to leave money in bank accounts. No, it's always uncertain with the stock market. They can put something that's actually kind of rides off inflation, which is really how real estate works. And I mean, the cost of debt for deals that we did last summer versus what we're doing this summer are 10, 15% less. We're getting twice as long on the interest only, maybe two years to 40 years. So it's just like, it's, it's very friendly for purchasing right now, I feel. And, um, I just, we'll see over the next few years, how everything works, but I think it's going to be always a safe Harbor for cash flow, which also hedging against the inflation, like you were saying. Yeah, I totally agree with you about the debt, uh, you know whether we like it or not, cap
1: rates are correlated to interest rates.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, you know, loosely, some people argue, well, cap rates and interest rates aren't correlated. And you know, but but the research shows they're about seventy percent correlated. And yeah, we've seen a a big drop in in all in rates for multifamily financing, and and that is going to pull down cap rates, I believe, in the short run or you know maybe the medium term. But as as I said, you know, when inflation rears its
0: head. Uh, cap rates will have to, to rise in lockstep to account for inflation. Yeah. And one thing I just want to say for the listeners is that Rob and I are usually, we're talking now about agency debt, which is a million dollars plus in loan amounts. I feel that there might be an issue for commercial banks. I know that's going higher when I talk to people that are looking for loans on less than a million dollars with commercial, local commercial banks. It is going up five, 10% on the down payment side and refinancing much more difficult. And there's a lot more hurdles. So we're talking about larger multifamily, you're going to have a different, uh, a different situation. And when you're going into dealing with your local bank or credit union, but um, that's, we're just, uh, when we're talking about that. So what mistakes do you commonly see other investors make?
1: Yeah. So a, a big one is hard to spot sometimes, but it's being too aggressive in how quickly you're projecting to implement your value add business plan. So people assume that they can get, you know, they can handle all the exterior construction as well as renovate all the interior units, you know, move in, better tenants, raise rents, and they can get all that done in the first year. And you'll see, you know, their their simple year-by-year pro forma it just goes from here and then it just jumps up and and now they're making money. So I think uh, you know, being more conservative and more honest. Uh, thinking through how long it's actually going to take for you to to achieve your business plan is, um, is is something that is a a common mistake. And I think one of the reasons for that is not too many models I see have a uh, very straightforward stabilization timeline input. And that was, and that was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and building and rebuilding while I was um, building my underwriting model because I just felt that this is the most complex and subjective part of the underwriting, you know, everything else pretty straightforward. There's some leeway here and there, but the the thing that you see models differ the most in, in the way that they stabilize and the way that they get from point A to point B essentially. And um, so, so just to run through it really quickly, the way that I uh, built our stabilization is we take the in place numbers of, you know, rents are here, for example, they're $900 and the way that I set it up is it's a, if, if our in-place rents are $900 and our pro forma rents are a thousand dollars, it'll linearly move towards the stabilization number across the amount of months that you input. So let's say I input mm. 10 months to get from $900 to a thousand dollars. You know, my rents will just slowly inch up by $10 every month until it, it reaches a thousand. And, you know, once you, <clears throat> understand your business plan and, and you have some experience in terms of how long it takes you to renovate and things like that and, and what occupancy you want to remain at. You know, that's another issue is some people assume yeah. that they can maintain really high occupancy while they're turning the rent roll and going through a bunch of unit renovations. So you have to look at a blend of you know, how fast you want to renovate, what occupancy do you want to maintain, and then fit, kind of figure out, okay, well, is it going to take me 12 or 18 or 24 months
0: to achieve you know, the, the full renovation cycle? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're, you're going to see that uh, you're definitely going to see your rent roll and your receivables just decrease when you're doing all these turns because you're going to have units. It's not going to be a perfect two weeks to renovate. Then you rent it. You have other units that you're waiting to get renovated that are going to be vacant. You have, so yeah, that's something that people definitely have to pencil in um, how many units they can actually do. And then how many units are still going to be vacant because of this, whether it's they, before they're going to renovate it or whether now I have my leasing person is now trying to lease that so how many am I going to have here before we release these so it's there's definitely a lot of factors that people don't normal underwriting doesn't doesn't bring in right they just say oh no we're going to go from your 94 we're going to go down to 90 and then everything's going to be great still when we're doing this which isn't isn't true but um so we both work with a number of passive investors so how do you suggest your passive investors to become more educated in real estate investing syndication um when you're when you start talking to them
1: I highly recommend, you know, looking at it as being an active, passive investor. I think if you really want to get the best results for yourself, you, you know, you need to take it seriously and you need to educate yourself just as you would if you were, let's say, you know, an active investor. And so I think there's books out there, um, you know, a shameless plug on my new book, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. Part of my motivation for writing that book was... The hope that passive investors would actually read the book, and 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 feel that the underwriting process is accessible to them, because I think that's sometimes portrayed as a black box, and that underwriting is this uh, you know dark art that leave it up to the experts. Just trust me on this, but no, I really want to empower you know the average passive investor to be able to have the proficiency to underwrite a deal. You know they can take a lot of the assumptions at face value and. Mm-hmm you know, plug in the numbers, but at least they're, they're doing it. And at least they're seeing how the numbers all interact with each other and what the results are. Um, you know, I, I find it very strange when some sponsors refuse to show their underwriting to an investor when they ask. I mean, I think that should be the first thing you see, right? Well, let's talk numbers. So um, you know, I, I highly recommend passive investors to to get my book, dive into it. You know, I've, I created it to be open and friendly for the passive investor while still being deep enough for the active investor to, to glean insights.
0: Yeah. And the underwriting is very important because even if they're so-called seasoned investors, syndicators, I've seen underwriting from seasoned investors that I was just seeing one in January that got closed on and they were saying they're doing 60% rent increases. And like people have to look at, if they were in that situation and can the market withstand that and how many years were they doing it? And it was over just like three or four years, which obviously that's changed now for them. But um, you have to review the underwriting for every deal and you also have to make sure like if it makes any sense, I mean, it's just, um, so how can people learn more about you and your business and get your book and I'll put all the links in YouTube and podcast notes.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. So to find out more about us, you can go to lonestarcapgroup.com. There you can check out, um, you know, the book, uh, my newsletter, as well as some other you know, articles and insights and find out more about our business. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can do so by emailing Rob at LoneStarCapGroup.com. You know, happy to uh, you know, answer any questions or, or get in touch further. Okay, awesome, Rob. Thank you very much
0: for coming on and have a great rest of your week. Thanks so much. Thanks. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners
1: Incorporated exclusively.